Um, Father, we want to thank you for this morning. We want to thank you for a chance to be together as your people. Uh, we want to thank you for the sunshine outside that cheers our, our spirits uh, as we come to church on a Sunday. Um, Father, we want to thank you for your word, uh, the word of life which fires us, uh, which speaks to our hearts and sets our souls ablaze. Um, Father, thank you for the gift of your word uh, that is so life-giving for us and so transformational and so liberating and so healing. Um, Father, help us this morning to really appreciate and receive this gift. Um, And we pray that your word uh, would find its way deep into our hearts uh, and make a real difference and do us really deep good this morning. Uh, And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start with uh, a story. Um, Let me put up a... We got our PowerPoint, Peter? I'm going to put up a picture and see if anybody can tell me who this is. We'll do a little pop quiz. Uh, Actually, so a little reminder where we've been in uh, the book of Ephesians. First half of the book uh, was about... God's new society, uh, the new humanity that God is creating in Christ uh, by reconciling us to himself and also to each other and making us this new community that displays God's grace and wisdom uh, to the world. And then in the second half of the book, we're focusing on our walk. Um, How do we actually walk day by day in a way that is worthy of that calling as God's new humanity, as God's new uh, society? Um, So here is your can anybody tell me who that is? Some of the, the greyer heads in the room may have a better chance here than some of the younger. Any, anybody know who that is? Clark, it's not Clark Gable. It looks a little like Clark Gable. Um, yes, who said that? Yes, thank you, Brian. Um, it's Howard Hughes. Um, he's not someone I know very much about, uh, but I was reading a book uh, a couple of weeks ago and just read a little bit about Howard Hughes, uh, which... Uh, and a little summary of his life, which really has stayed with me. Um, and I just want to read you a couple of paragraphs about him. Uh, some of you will know lots about him and some of you won't. Um, at the height of Hollywood's golden age, Howard Hughes was everywhere. He was plastered all over the gossip pages. He was the mid-century embodiment of a glamorous celebrity. Someone who drunk lustily from the well of personal freedom that the modern world offered. He was an Academy Award-winning Hollywood producer, a property baron, a daredevil pilot, a breaker of land speed records. He was tall, handsome, and smashingly rich. He dated scores of Hollywood's most desired women. He was a walking advertisement for the freedoms of technology, sex, money, and power offered by the modern world. That's one paragraph, but here's the second one. Hughes's later years would be anything but an expanse of freedom. At some point during his 40s, Hughes disappeared into darkened rooms inside hotels that he owned and became a recluse. Blocking out the world, he retreated into the screen, a movie projector in his room, allowing him to endlessly binge on his favourite films while he filled his body with coding. A telephone line, his only communication with the outside world. The man who embodied the freedom and movement of the modern world, now paralysed by the screen, oppressed and imprisoned by his appetites, pleasure and power gave way to paranoia and suffocating anxiety. Um, Something about that story 
that to me captures a lot of, well, maybe a lot of what we're going to talk about this morning. Maybe a lot of what can happen in our modern world. That picture of a man alone in his room, watching a screen, filling his body with chemicals, uh, full of anxiety, full of paranoia, I think sums up a lot of the, the sickness of our age, uh, even though he was maybe uh, 50 years ago uh, or whatever. So keep, keep hard Hughes in mind um, as we go this morning. Uh, but I want to read some words from, uh, first of all, Ephesians 4, and then a little bit from Ephesians 5. Uh, so we're going to read from Ephesians 4, verse 17. Um, you can follow on the screen or you can, you can follow in your Bible uh, as we read. Uh, This is where Paul is going to get very blunt and very direct in talking about how we live. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity They have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Um, Paul then goes on to to start listing some very specific behaviours that we're going to talk about in a little while, but I'm not going to read that whole section. Uh, But I want to go down to chapter 5, verse 8 and just read a few more verses. So he says this, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. It is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, and everything that is illuminated becomes a light. And then, I'm going to finish with these words just from verse 14. This is why it is said, wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Uh, some people think that may have been a, a, a chorus or a hymn that they sang in the early church um, Uh, But they're they're powerful, beautiful words. Wake up, sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Uh, Maybe if you forget everything else we talk about uh, this morning, those are words you want to take into your week um, and just uh, meditate on and memorize and uh, speak over your your days. Um, Paul Paul uses this language of um, putting off your old self and putting on the new. and it's really, it's kind of a metaphor, isn't it? It's kind of a picture of uh, taking off old clothing uh, that's kind of uh, dragging you down and weighing you down and uh, getting in the way and putting on a brand new set of clothes for your new life. I think that's kind of the image. Take off the old, 
and throw it away from you. It's kind of quite, quite aggressively uh, put it off and put on the new. Um, we could put it really bluntly and say this, this whole section of the book is about saying no to certain things, uh, saying a really decisive no to certain things in our lives and saying a really emphatic yes uh, to certain other things. Um, and what we're going to do this week and in two weeks' time, we're going to kind of scan through the same section. This section uh, this kind of takes us through a lot of chapter four and into chapter five. Um, and this week, we're going to focus on the no. Right? So, so that sounds very negative about this morning. But this week, is uh, the title of this sermon is just no. Right? Um, and in two weeks' time, our title is going to be yes. And we're going to explore what are the things we're to say yes to and that we're to put on. Uh, but this week, we're going to focus on the things we are to put off um, and say no to. Um, it's a good Northern Irish word, isn't it? No. Um, but hopefully this will do us more good, maybe, than uh, some of the way the word has been used. Um, Paul says this at the beginning uh, of the passage that we read. Um, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. It's a, pretty, it's a pretty blunt way to begin. You must, He says, I insist on it in the Lord. You must no longer live as the Gentiles do. Um, and I want to ask maybe two questions that might come to mind when we hear Paul say that uh, very bluntly. Um, and this will kind of maybe help us get into this passage. And the first thing is this, is Paul not a bit hard on the Gentiles here? Um, he kind of seems to write off an entire culture um, in, in incredibly negative terms. Um, so I want to say this, I don't think Paul is speaking about all Gentiles all the time, that there is nothing good in the Gentile culture. Um, if you think about, uh, do you remember Paul's sermon in Athens in the book of Acts in Acts 17, where he's able to walk through the city and he, he quotes their poets and he says, as your poets have said, and he agrees with some of what their, their writers and their poets have been saying. So Paul is able to find good things in the pagan culture, uh, in the Gentile culture that he agrees with. But he does seem to be speaking about something in the culture as a whole. It's not all Gentiles all the time, but there is something has gone rotten at the heart of that culture that causes Paul to speak really strong words. Um, maybe whenever uh, we think of the Roman Empire and the ancient world, the kind of Greco-Roman world, um, often, I don't know what you think of when you think of the Roman world, often first we think of their great achievements, like uh, they built really good roads. Uh, they built amazing, amazing buildings, uh, some of which the ruins uh, kind of still exist today. Uh, maybe we think about that kind of Greek culture uh, that then got passed on to the Roman world of their poetry and their drama and their philosophy and their kind of beautiful things that they created. Um, but actually, the ancient world, the Greco-Roman world, the pagan world, um, was a culture with a dark heart. And this is kind of what we're, maybe Paul is getting at as we begin this passage. Um, I, I was watching a fascinating interview um, uh, online uh, this week uh, with this man. This is a man called Tom Holland, not to be confused with the actor who plays Spider-Man, who's a lot younger. Um, but Tom Holland is a historian. Um, and there's a fascinating interview online uh, that Tom Holland has done with Glenn Scrivener, who was here uh, doing the mission with us in Corian uh, a couple of years ago. Um, Tom Holland is not a Christian. Um, he describes himself as a 
in his own words, as a typical liberal secular agnostic. Uh, that's his kind of description. Uh, but in the interview with Glenn, uh, he talks about how he used to think that everything good in our Western democracies came from the Greeks and the Romans. And Christianity kind of got in the way and messed everything up. And he has kind of um, quite radically revised that position. Um, and he basically says whenever he went and studied the Greco-Roman world, he came away kind of disgusted by what he read. He came away feeling kind of sick uh, inside. Uh, he found that actually it was a culture that was incredibly cruel, that glamorized power uh, and might, that despised the weak. The weak were thrown on the trash heap of society. Uh, showing mercy to the weak was seen as a sign of tremendous weakness. There's a real cruelty in the Greco-Roman world. Um, and along with that, there was also um, a, an incredible self-indulgence. It was a culture given over to um, its appetites, whether it was for food or for drink or for sex. Every appetite was to be indulged and without much self-control or without much limit. And that's why you can understand Paul's words when Paul says they have given themselves over to sensuality. It's a culture that is just led by its appetites, led by its desires uh, to, to do whatever uh, pleases them. Um, it's fascinating whenever a historian who's not a believer, um, Tom Holland has also recently revised his view of Christianity and now says, although he's not a believer in Christianity, he actually thinks everything that he admires about Western culture came from Christianity. Um, it's an extraordinary thing. You should watch the interview um, online if you, if you get a chance. Um, so, there was something about the pagan world. Um, there was a dark heart to that culture. Um, and of course, their religion encouraged those impulses that we've just talked about. It's, it's maybe no surprise that the people were violent and sexually self-indulgent and drunken and all the rest because their gods were the same. Uh, if you read about the pagan gods, they were violent and uh, capricious and uh, always fighting and sleeping with whoever they wanted to and, and all the rest. Um, and so if you went to the temples of the pagan world, there were often, there was prostitution uh, associated with the temples. There were orgies that went on in the temples and all the rest. And you'll, you'll maybe remember from the start of this series that the city of Ephesus, uh, the place that is maybe the main recipient of this letter, um, was dominated by the, the temple of Artemis, also known as Diana, who was a fertility goddess. Um, so there, th this was uh, one of the wonders of the ancient world. It dominated the entire city. But it was a celebration of sexuality and sexual indulgence of all kinds. And so that's what's going on right at the heart of the culture that Paul is writing this letter into. Um, and so Paul, I think, is not exaggerating whenever he describes the darkness that has engulfed that culture. And most of the Christians that he's writing this letter to lived right tangled up in that world before they came to Christ. And so Paul says to them, you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. There's to be an emphatic breaking with the life that you used to live. Um, there's one little part that he says there that I find fascinating. Uh, I found this little picture this week uh, that I maybe illustrates, illustrates what Paul says. Um, I don't know if you noticed a bit where Paul says 
They are darkened in their understanding because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. And so he's saying the darkness of understanding has come from something that has happened in the heart. The heart plays the tune and then the mind follows. Um, I find that um, extraordinarily helpful. Um, Maybe sometimes you can get into debates and arguments with people where you feel like their thinking is dark and you can get into endless arguments trying to change their mind. But if what has gone wrong is actually a hardness of heart, then no amount of argument is going to change the mind. What's needed actually is for the heart of stone to be taken away and replaced with the heart of flesh. And only God can do that, right? And so I, I, actually, I think that's tremendously helpful whenever we're dealing with people that we, we can't get anywhere with. Um, and I also want to say, of course, this can happen with us as well. We can be self-deceived. Sometimes we choose to believe what our heart prefers to be true. Our heart decides what we want to believe and then we come up with sophisticated intellectual reasons to justify what the heart has already decided. Um, So maybe that picture will help a little bit um, in thinking about that. Um, So is Paul not very hard on the Gentiles? Actually, I think he's being really realistic about what had gone wrong at the heart of the culture uh, that they were part of. And lots of people would argue that our culture today is heading towards a kind of new paganism. And I think that's probably true. There's a lot of similarities between ancient paganism and kind of a neo-paganism that we're heading into now. Um, So second thing, um, is this not very negative teaching? You kind of reach this part of the book and Paul's saying, you must no longer live this way. Um, And maybe some of us kind of have a reaction where we think, after all Paul's beautiful words so far, about God's new society uh, and all the rest, does it just boil down in the end to what we expected, which is, thou shalt not. (laughs) Um, You must not do this and you must not do that. Some people suspect that that's in the end what Christianity is all about. Um, It's kind of negative rules. Um, There are lots of people today, uh, and I'm sure many of your friends and colleagues uh, may uh, may be in this category. There are lots of people today who are rejecting all what they call traditional morality uh, because they feel it restricts our freedom and it stops us being fully human and fully alive. Um, And of course, that's a reaction against forms of religion, including sometimes forms of Christianity that have been really gloomy and heavy and harsh and negative. And so people are in reaction and flight against that. Um, But in reaction, there are lots of people today who are kind of saying, Let's stop saying no. We've had enough, maybe especially in Northern Ireland, we've had enough of people saying no. Let's say yes instead. Let's say yes to everything. Let's let's have an embracing philosophy and and morality and ethic. Um, And so it's maybe summed up often like this. People say, follow your desires. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Uh, There's maybe other versions of it as well. Follow your bliss. (laughs) Uh, you know, wherever your, wherever your desires lead, um, go there. There's always um, a little footnote uh, along with that that says there are a few terms and conditions that apply. If you have these desires or these dreams, you're not allowed to follow them. But by and large, um, this is kind of the, uh, the, the yes philosophy uh, of our age. Um, and so I want to say something maybe that, that is kind of really countercultural. Uh, and I want to say this, that if we want to do anything positive and beautiful, 
there have to be some things we will not do. <laughs> right? If you want to do something positive and beautiful, there have to be some things you will not do. There have to be some things you will say no to. Limits and boundaries are not actually a bad thing. They actually create the space where beautiful things can happen. Right? And I want to give you a couple of uh, non-spiritual theological examples, just everyday examples. Um, for some reason, I'm talking about football a lot at the minute. I don't normally do that. But uh, some people call football the beautiful game. Some of you may agree, some of you may not. Um, but around the edge of the football pitch is a, a white line. And that's the line within which the game is to be played. Um, and if you want to create beautiful things on a football pitch, you have to have the boundary. If you get rid of the boundary, it doesn't create more freedom. It just creates confusion and chaos. Uh, you can no longer, Messi can no longer create the beautiful patterns uh, of passing and vision and all the rest that he creates on a pitch. The boundary is an important part uh, of creating the space where beautiful things happen. Okay, Those of you who hate football, let me give you a different example. Um, in the art world, um, most works of art, uh, in whatever medium they are, have a, have a boundary, have a limit. So a painter decides this will be the size of my painting, and often there's a, an actual uh, frame around the outside, and it creates the space within which something beautiful is created. If you get rid of all boundaries and decide your work of art is going to be the size of the world, Again, confusion and chaos. You're not able to create something beautiful. Um, in, in everyday life, uh, boundaries and limits create the space where something beautiful can happen. And the same is true when it comes to morality and ethics. Um, let, me, let me read you a quotation from uh, Eugene Peterson again. Um, Peterson says, The negative is our access to freedom. Only humans can say no. Animals can't say no. Animals do what instinct dictates. No is a freedom word. It's not kind of a surprising thing. I don't have to do what either my glands or my culture tells me to do. It's not a brilliant sentence. I don't have to do what either my glands or my culture tell me to do. The art of saying no sets us free to follow Jesus. Right? So, and that... That, that's worth really dwelling on because it's so countercultural. Our culture no longer seems to believe that that is true. That actually to say no, to have limits, to have boundaries um, leads us into greater freedom and a more beautiful life. Um, we, need, we need the freedom of saying no. Um, why do we need that freedom? Paul says, um, because our old self is being continually corrupted. That's, that's the sense of that, that phrase by its deceitful desires. Why should we not just follow our desires, uh, follow our dreams, follow our, our heart? Because our desires are deceitful. This is, this is the heart of our problem. Our desires are disordered and deceitful. Um, we're not saying that desire is bad. Uh, desire is a good thing. Uh, but like a needle on a compass which doesn't point north, um, our desires have gone awry. They're no longer reliable. They can't be trusted. And so if we follow our desires, they don't lead us to the freedom they promised. We're promised if you follow your desires and your dreams, you're going to find liberation and freedom. But it's a lie. 
It's not what happens. Remember Howard Hughes? He indulged in every kind of freedom that the modern world offered, and he ended up alone and addicted and anxious and afraid, right? Because that's what happens. Our desires lead us astray. Um, There's a wonderful song I may have quoted before by the late Rich Mullins, um, and he talks about how when he asks people in our world for advice about how to live, um, this is what he says. He says, they said, boy, just follow your heart. But my heart just led me into my chest. They said, follow your nose, but the direction changed every time I went and turned my head. They said, boy, just follow your dreams, but my dreams were only misty notions. And then you know what Rich Mullen says? He says, but the father of hearts and the maker of noses and the giver of dreams, he's the one I've chosen and I will follow him, right? Um, I find that beautiful every time. Uh, every time that song comes back to mind. Um, So I want to talk really bluntly this morning about some of the things Paul tells us to say no to. Um, And I want to encourage us, I'm about to put them on the the screen. Um, I want to encourage us, um, don't forget everything that's gone before. Um, We have this really bad habit sometimes in the Christian life of if somebody gives us a list of rules, uh, even in the Bible, we throw everything else out the window and say, I'm going to take my list of rules and that'll do me. I'm just going to try really hard not to do these things. Um, I'm going to try really hard to do better things. Um, remember the gospel truths that we've been talking about all the way through the book of Ephesians, right? Remember especially Christ dwells in your heart through faith, right? So the strength, the power to walk in these things, to say no to these things, to say yes to other things, comes from him, from his incomparably great power for us who believe, from the power of the resurrection that's in you and I by the Spirit, right? So don't forget all that. We have this really bad habit of just forgetting the gospel and trying to do the rules uh, in our own strength. Um, Keep the gospel in mind. Um, But uh, it's really helpful sometimes to have someone speak really bluntly to us. And so here are um, six things we must and can say no to. And I want to say both those things. We must say no to these things if we're going to walk in freedom, and we can, because Christ dwells in our hearts through faith and his power is within us. So here they are. Um, and I want you uh, to encourage you to be listening out uh, for maybe there's one of the six that you particularly need to pay attention to uh, in your life at the minute. Um, first one is falsehood. Paul tells us to get rid of all dishonest speech, all lies, all half, half-truths, all falsehood from our speech okay some of these don't really need much comment um second thing he tells us to say no to is what i've called anger sins um, i didn't know quite how to express this because paul says in your anger do not sin because anger in itself is not a sin it can be healthy and can even be a righteous response but it tends to lead inevitably to other ugly things and paul lists some of them bitterness Rage, brawling, slander, malice. Those are anger sins. They bubble out of anger. And they bubble out of anger very quickly. Which is why Paul says, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because those things will bubble up very quickly. The the fruit of anger, the children of anger. uh, All those things. So falsehood, anger sins. Thirdly, stealing. Um, All, uh, but that one doesn't really need comment. He doesn't say much more about it. 
Um, we, do, we don't need to either. Stealing of other people's property uh, and, and possessions and all the rest. Um, fourthly, Paul tells us to say no to unwholesome talk. Um, and he actually uh, dwells on this quite a bit. Um, he, he describes it as obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking. Um, there is something about our speech. Um, you find the same emphasis in the teaching of Jesus, uh, where he talks about the words that come out of our mouth having huge importance. We're, we're to say no to all unwholesome talk. Um, fifthly, we're to say no to sexual immorality. Um, he also talk, describes it as impurity and greed. Whenever Paul in this passage talks about greed, I think he's talking specifically about sexual greed, a kind of con- uh, an endless desire for more, an endless greed for more and more. Um, and so number five is sexual immorality. Number six, which is hidden away down near the end of the passage, um, he talks about drunkenness, which leads to other things, which leads to debauchery, which leads to making foolish choices, which we wouldn't otherwise make. Um, we, 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 we make those foolish choices when we're under the influence. Um, so there are six really blunt words from Paul. He says, these things are to be put off. They're to be cast aside. They're to be thrown violently from you. Uh, we're to say an emphatic no. Um, even as I put them on the screen, um, I wonder how, what your reaction is. Um, I wonder, can you imagine a world without those things? What would, what would Corian be like without any of these things? What would our nation be like without these things? What would our world be like without these things? Um, would that not be a beautiful thing <laughs> if these things were gone? Um, can you imagine your life without these things, without any trace of these things being left? Um, I want to encourage you again. You are able to say no to these things because Christ dwells in your heart through faith. The power of the resurrection is within you. So you are able to say no. Um, I was wondering, um, I'd be interested to know what you think. What, thinking about your friends who are not believers, um, what do you think your friends would make of this list uh, if we, we set it before them? I, I was kind of thinking about it, thinking, um, actually, I think most people would agree with some of them. <laughs> most people would agree that a world without falsehood would be good. We may not know how to, how to create that world, but a world without lies and deceit and dishonesty would be good. I think most people would agree that a world without those anger sins of malice and slander and aggressive hostility would be good, right? Um, I think most people uh, would agree that a world without stealing would be good. We may not know how to get rid of that in our world, but most people would agree. Um, I felt like people might argue with us or debate with us a wee bit about four and six. Um, Some of our friends may say those things don't really do any damage. Unwholesome talk and drunkenness, not doing any harm. Those things are fine. Um, We may want to enter into a conversation about that. Do those things cause no harm? Or actually, do they cause an awful lot of harm in our world? Do they lead to all kinds of other hurt and wounding and damage? Um, But for me, there's no doubt which one is the most controversial of the six. And that's this one here. Um, The word that Paul uses in Greek um, is this word, is the word pornea. Um, Among you, there is to be not even a hint, Paul says, 
of pornea. Um, it's a word that was closely connected to the word in the ancient world for prostitution. So it certainly included that stuff we were talking about earlier on, the temple prostitution and the orgies that went on around the temple and all the rest. But actually in the New Testament, it's really clear that when the New Testament writers use this word, it actually refers to all kinds of sexual behavior outside of the covenant of marriage. Right? All kinds of sexual behavior outside of marriage are included. Um, and actually, you may remember, Jesus even extends our understanding of this to include even lustful thoughts, what we imagine, what we think of in our mind. Um, certainly, you'll have noticed the word is similar to a word we use in our world, so certainly it includes the epidemic of pornography. Uh, that's a big characteristic of our uh, addicted culture. Um, so um, I... I'm sure, you would, I'm sure most of you would agree with me. For most of our friends, that would be the most controversial one. Uh, we might immediately find our friends asking the question that Glenn Scrivener asked in Coleraine a couple of years ago, uh, which was sex. Why are Christians so weird about it? Why are Christians so obsessed with it? Why are they always talking about it? Um, and all the rest. Or uh, the form in which I most often hear this question being asked is something like this. Uh, people say, why does God care what consenting adults get up to in the privacy of their own bedrooms? And that, that's kind of the almost sarcastic, disdainful way that the question is normally asked. Why would God care about those things? Um, so I've been reflecting on this a little bit, and I, I want to give you two uh, very blunt answers to that question. I'm going to follow Paul's example and be really blunt, right? Because uh, this is a question people often ask. Um, two possible answers. Uh, first of all, God cares about what consenting adults get up to in our, their bedrooms because God cares about every single part of our lives. He cares about what happens in every room of our lives. Um, and actually, I think we've got to be careful what we wish for. Because if we wish for a God who doesn't care what happens in the bedroom, there's no reason to believe he's going to care about what happens in any other room. Uh, why would he care about what happens in the living room or the kitchen or the classroom or the boardroom or the hospital ward or ev all the other rooms where we work and play and dream and cry and live our lives? Um, I believe with all my heart, God cares about our lives and he cares about all of it. He cares about the sparrow. Uh, he knows when the sparrow falls to the ground and he cares about you and he cares about every room of your life. Uh, if you get rid of a God who cares about one room, you, you lose any right to believe in a God who cares about uh, the others. Um, the second reason is this, very blunt reason, um, is that sex is a powerful force, both for good and for harm. Um, and our culture has tended to reduce sex to something recreational and talks about it as a bit of harmless fun, uh, something that just involves your body and doesn't have any other impacts. Um, but actually, part of what I think we need to say a little louder is that the Christian view of sex is higher and more beautiful than the, the culture's view. Actually, it's something more amazing and beautiful and mysterious than that. Um, it involves bodies, but it also involves minds and hearts and spirits. Um, and it's something to be enjoyed and to be celebrated. It's something that's good and blessed. And we, don't, we haven't said that well enough as a church uh, I'm talking about the church in our world um, in the past. 
and we haven't done a good job of saying that, but it can also be misused in ways that cause deep and grievous harm. Um, and again, um, well, I was going to use an analogy, but I'm, I'm not. I'm going to skip on because uh, I want to say other things. So I was going to talk about a horse, but you can ask me later uh, why I was talking about a horse. Um, um, Paul says, um, well, let, let me say this first. Our, our culture, um, I think, has kind of been in the middle of a huge experiment since the 1960s um, uh, on what they call the, the kind of sexual revolution of seeing what happens if we throw off the restrictions of traditional morality and just follow our sexual desires, again, with a few caveats of ones that we're not to follow. Um, but by and large, if we, if we follow what we desire. Um, and I want to ask you honestly, has the sexual revolution led to freedom? Um, actually, I think the truth is that it has led to all kinds of mess and epidemics of family breakdown and loneliness and mental illness and anxiety and all the rest, all kinds of wounds, both visible and invisible. We have become addicted and enslaved by our appetites because our desires were deceitful and they led us astray. Um, and I, I've never come across anybody who says this better than Frederick Bickner when he says, lust is the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. It's the craving for salt of a man dying of thirst. And all it does is make us thirstier and more empty um, as individuals and as a culture. Um, two other quotes uh, that, that really struck me as I thought about this this week. Uh, one, one novelist says, the young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. Right? What's the craving? What's the desire? Uh, the desire is a desire for God, but we go looking in all the wrong places and we cause ourselves all kinds of damage. Um, but let me read you this one, because this one blew, blew my mind when I read it this week. Um, C.S. Lewis said this. I somehow hadn't come across this before in all my Lewis reading. But this is what he said. He said, lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with that richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Isn't that an amazing quote? Um, lust is a poor, weak, whimpering, whispering thing compared with the richness and energy of desire which will arise when lust has been killed. Because desire is not bad, but God wants to give us healthy desires, good desires uh, that are in the right proportion for all kinds of things in our lives. And so Paul says, among you there must not be even a hint of pornea. Um, and part of what I love about that is it levels the playing field. He sets the bar so high, not a hint, that it makes sure that we know we're all included so we're not to run around pointing the finger at other people saying, this is your problem. And we have a real habit in this area of focusing on the sins that other people are tempted by rather than the ones that we are tempted by. Um, all of us struggle with this, with desires that are disordered. Um, all of us need the grace of God and the help of God and the spirit of God and the help of the people of God to fight this battle. Um, so let me ask this to finish. Um, what should we do? Um, going back to our original list, um, I focused on the one that maybe needs the most attention right now in our culture. Um, what should we do when we feel convicted? Maybe as we're reading this and we, we hear the no and we sense the conviction of the spirit and we know this is an area we struggle in. Um, what should we do? Um, my final encouragement um, 
is simply this, is bring them into the light. Paul says in the words we read at the end, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light, right? And I don't think living as children of light means get it right all the time or do it perfectly. It it means confessing our sins. It means bringing them into the light where they can be forgiven and where they can be healed and where their power can be broken. These things, all of these things that we, we listed grow stronger in secrecy. But when you bring them into the light and you confess them to a brother or sister, you confess them before God, you bring them into the light of Christ, then their power gets broken. Um, the light of Christ is forgiving light. It is gracious light. It is also healing light and liberating light. It breaks the power of these things in our lives. And you know, I love to quote that line in the hymn that says, he breaks the power of cancelled sin and sets the prisoner free. Right? That's, what, that's what the light of Christ does in our lives. Um, and so Paul says, wake up, sleeper. Stop sleepwalking through these things. Um, don't treat them lightly. Don't shrug about the presence of these things in your lives. Wake up, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Um, and I want to encourage you, if some of the things we've been talking about this morning are things that you're struggling with, if you're feeling trapped, if you're feeling addicted, if you're feeling hopeless, um, I want to encourage you, there is all kinds of hope when you bring these things into the light of Christ. Um, I want to encourage you, find someone you trust. Let them know what you're struggling with. Bring these things into the light uh, and you'll find that the power of Christ, the power of the resurrection, um, sets you free from desires that lead to death and puts in you those new desires uh, that lead us to life. Um, Let's pray together and then we'll sing as we finish this morning. Um, Father, I want to I wanna pray. I'm, I'm aware these are blunt words that your word speaks to us. Um, I want to thank you that in your love for us, you warn us bluntly about things that will kill us, things that cause all kinds of wounding and hurt and damage and mess and brokenness and addiction in our lives and in our culture. Father, thank you that in your love for us, you warn us about those things. Um, Thank you that in your love for us, you don't leave us alone to fight a battle against these things, but you've put your spirit within us. The same spirit who raised Christ from the dead is in us. Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. And so I want to pray this morning, especially for anybody in the room who's feeling entangled and defeated by some of the things that we've been talking about. I want to pray, would you stir up hope within them again this morning? Would you stir up a desire to fight this morning? Um, And would you remind them that you have given them weapons to fight back against these deceitful desires that lead us into all kinds of trouble and mess? Um, Father, help us to help each other. Help us all. uh, Give us us courage uh, to open up and share with our brothers and sisters things we are struggling with and ask for their help. Um, Help us all to be an encouragement uh, to those who confide in us. Uh, But most of all, we pray, would the light of Christ 
shine into our lives like the, the, the dawning sun breaking into the darkness of the night. Uh, would the light of Christ shine in our lives, wake us up from sleep, wake us up from deadness that's in our lives due to sin and help us to walk in newness of life. Set us free from everything that enslaves us and entangles us so we can walk in the freedom of the children of God. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.